Hi, welcome back. We're doing a, a uh, binge fest with Jordan Maxwell, and this one's called Solar Worship on Gaia. Thanks for 331k. Just had a jump, biggest spike I've ever had. I don't know exactly what it's from, but who knows? Maybe Jordan Maxwell. Sun has always held a prominent role in theology, religion, and spirituality since the beginning of human civilization because of the many cultures that worship the sun and applied it to their own gods and religious practice. Solar worship may be the greatest story ever told. Jordan Maxwell discusses concerns that may consider controversial to conventional religious doctrine, but it is important to understand how ancient cultures viewed the sun as it moves through the zodiac and the way they symbolize its powerful influence upon the This is Secret Life of Symbols. On this episode, I'd like to talk a little bit about the sun and its symbolic importance in the whole story of the zodiac. Now, as we begin the story of the sun and the ancient religions of the world and how much the sun has dominated civilization for as long as we have records. We need to go back to the very beginning, and that's a long time ago. Let's go back to Egypt. We'll start in Egypt because that's one of the oldest civilizations on the earth. And we will see how Egypt developed the concept of the importance of the sun in relation to theology and spirituality and religion. Now, this is an ancient symbol for the sun, prehistoric that the ancient peoples drew to represent the you sun. You know, I did a it's painting. An equal and it, cross. I did this painting. It's the same. It's the same symbol, and um, that's so interesting that it's a symbol of the sun. But yeah, it's a it's a painting of Tristaland, this place, and kind of put them. It puts them in quad quadrants. It's it's a like an X and a circle. It could thought it could be like being in the crosshairs or the uh, uh like a target, you know. But I'm glad that it it uh, means that. That's very interesting. Within the circle. Seems kind of like an unconscious, subconscious thing. And I've always, well, I've, ever since I've come back here and become the steward of this beautiful place, Reiki Southwest, it struck me that how much of a kind of druidic layout this place has. It seems to me like a big oval and also like a ship, like a Noah's Ark. Here is a artifact that was found in England. It's on hinge. It's on a golden circle, which represents the sun. And then you'll see the cross in between. And this is about 4,500 years old. 
Almost 5,000 years ago, ancient mankind drew pictures of what they perceived the sun to be as an equal armed cross, and you will see it also in the ancient religions of the Near and Middle East, the different ancient gods in the Phoenician, Canaanite, Sumerian systems. They all had the equal armed <clears throat> cross. But it's important to remember that mm. the sun was never perceived as a mm, god. Six, it was six. perceived to represent the spiritual qualities of God and that it brought life to the earth, it brought warmth to the earth, it brought energy grapes, for us to live. So grapes. all of the good things about God and his creation was best represented by the symbol of the sun. Sometimes the sun actually even looks like it has an equal arm cross in the heavens. Hmm. The reason why it's four equal arms on the cross is because there are four equal seasons of the year. We have north, six east, arms west, and picture. south, the four corners. Then each one of those like four corners wheel. represents a season of the year, spring, summer, autumn, winter. This is why you have four Gospels, four Matthew, directions. Mark, Luke, and John. Because they're talking about the life of the sun. The ancient peoples, like us today, we draw a circle, a round circle, and we divide it into four equal parts. Quadrants. And so now you have an equal armed cross inside of a circle. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, spring, summer, autumn, winter. There's a lot of symbolism in the Bible that we have misunderstood and mistaken. The whole idea is the four lodging places of the sun gives us our four seasons of the year. You will find the equal arm cross all over the world. Every race and creed and color has mm. the same symbol for the ancient sun. The Nordics had the symbol. The Vikings kept the symbol. Ancient France used the symbol. The symbol was on rocks and carvings and paintings. Even in India, you have the equal arm cross. The Celtic and the Celtic Druids in Europe and England and Ireland had an equal arm cross. Native mm. Americans used it, mm. Central America, and especially in Mayan and Inca and some of the ancient religions in South America have used the equal arm cross. So it Super interesting. Taking pictures make make like. Uh... And especially in Mayan and Inca and some of the ancient uh, religions in South America have used the equal arm cross. Mm -hmm. So it became known around the world that the equal arm cross within a circle represented the old five thousand year old petroglyph concept of the sun. Today, people see it everywhere, and so it has become not really important because it's just a general symbol that people realize is a cross. Here is a picture of the ancient Nordic peoples that were preparing for what we would call today the Easter sunrise service. Here, the ancient peoples in Europe realized that the sun was coming back to the northern hemisphere. And it would bring with it the warmth, the food, and life 
And so they all gathered with their sun symbol to welcome back the sun that had died in winter and was coming back to the northern hemisphere. It became known as what we call today Easter. The circle on the cross is not a man dying on a cross. It's the sun on the northeast, west, and southern parts of the earth. The idea being, of course, is that when the sun dies in winter, and then when it is reborn on December 25th, the sun actually begins uh, to move northward. Uh, and when it does, that tells the world that the sun is now northward. coming back to the northern hemisphere, bringing back the sun to us in the northern hemisphere. Because for us in the northern hemisphere, the sun was dead to us because it was in the southern hemisphere. But now it's being born again and coming back to the northern hemisphere. That's the whole story in itself, is the vision of the sun going southward, dying on the cross, and then being reborn on December 25th when it moved one degree northward, and now is coming back and sort of springing back to life. And so on the, in the spring, we call it springing back to life. So you will have the symbol everywhere, and even the European agency for the Euro uses the same equal arm cross to represent the new Euro establishment. You will always find in royalty throughout the world, royalty and governments always use this equal arm cross. The Nazis used it, even in the parade of the Nazis used the swastika, which is a symbol of the sun also. But you will see also that they are using the equal arm cross. Coptic Christians, even the kings and rulers like the uh, emperors of Europe, always had the equal arm cross on their staff. Equal arm cross with the sun god and churches. In September, mid-September, around the world, Christians will gather in schools and universities to worship their, their God, Jesus, who died on a cross. And when they call this ritual, uh, see you at the pole. See you at the pole means that Christians will gather around the flagpole at their colleges and schools to uh, venerate and to worship Jesus, God's Son, the light of the world. Well, of course, the sun is the light of the world. But here are Christians gathering to worship Jesus, never realizing that they are actually meeting around a very ancient symbol of the old petroglyph cross. But this symbol of an equal arm cross within the circle represents an old ancient idea of how to picture the sun. And it's really extraordinary to, to notice that all churches use that same symbol. And all over the world, people do not realize that this cross that they think represents Christianity is actually over 5,000 years old. It's an ancient, prehistoric symbol of the sun. Jesus has always represented 
the sun, the S-U-N, not S-O-N. Jesus is my friend. The etymology of the word for the sun. You see that sun can be S-U-N or S-O-N. And depending on how it's used. S-O-N and S-U-N are used interchangeably in Christianity. Illustration. In the Christian church, you will see they're all actually a round, glowing sun. Not a young child or a baby or a man, but the S-U-N. There's two words, S-U-N and S-O-M. But the Christianity and Judaism are based on the worship of the S-U-N, not S-O-N. That's a misunderstanding. That misunderstanding is part of the history of the English language. Because if you go back into the King's Old English, you go back into the history of the English language, there is a phenomenon which in English class you will learn is called the lazy O. The lazy O is a phenomenon in English which means that translators always translated son, S-O-N and S-U-N, all in the same sentence. And so it became known as the lazy O. They were talking about the S-U-M, but they used S-O-M because they were lazy. They just used either one. The mother of Jesus is Mary, which is actually Mari, M-A-R-I, not M-A-R-Y. Mari means pure. And therefore, the mother of Jesus is a virgin or Virgo, one of the 12 signs of the zodiac is a Virgo, the Virgin. So here is Mari, or Mary, the Virgin, Virgo, holding the baby Jesus, or God's Son, the light of the world. Today we still have Jesus as God's Son in the heavens, and he became now a great sun god. But the question you need to ask yourself is, who owns the sun? You will assume that the sun must be owned by someone. Well, mankind doesn't own the sun. If anything, you would say maybe God owns the sun. So if it's God owns the sun, then it's God's sun, and he's the light of the world. Of course the sun is the light of the world. Looking at the communion host, the Catholic communion host, you will see it always looks like the old ancient petroglyph sun. You see that the sun and Jesus' hand represents the S-U-N. The Holy Eucharist represents the sun. This is why the priests in the church on Sundays will raise the, the, the sun. They will raise it. And why? Because that's what the sun does. It rises. So the sun rises. in the Catholic Church is always the old petroglyph sign. Jesus means God is with us. And you will see the priest is representing Jesus <laughs> as a sun. All of this sun goes wafer. back many, many <laughs> thousands and thousands of years before Christianity ever existed. And it has nothing to do with Christianity Snack, at all. Wafer, snacks. It has to do with exactly what Church it's showing. Snacks. Sun worship. And today we're still doing the same thing. We're worshiping the sun. And you will see the sun is 
prominent in all of Catholicism. Everywhere you look at Catholicism, are worshippers of the sun. Now here we have a picture of Jesus giving to the children a part of his body. And what is he giving them? A little round sun disc. We're told that we should all take part of his body at the First Communion. In a communion in the Catholic Church, you're taking part of God's son's body. The whole idea is very obvious what's being talked about here. We're just talking about sun worship. The idea that the sun dies on a cross goes back to the old petroglyph cross. And so that's where we see it now all over the world, all Christianity. You'll see the sun is always dying on a cross because in the southern constellation, when you go down south, when the sun reaches the lowest part in the sky in southern hemisphere, there is a constellation of stars that look just exactly like a uh, cross. And so we say the sun, when it dies in December, it goes down and dies on the cross. The cross is called the Southern Cross. When he was dead, but now he's coming back to the Northern Hemisphere because he promised he would return. And he is returning again in the spring. Solar symbolism of the sun going southwards each, uh, each day until it finally reaches uh, December 22nd when it's, it's its lowest point in the southern sky, it's down south now, it's gone south. But on December 22nd, the sun goes as far in the south as it's going to go, and it stops going southward on December 22nd. It doesn't go any further southward. Then on the 23rd and 24th, it rises on the same degree. And therefore, for three days, it doesn't move at all. It stays at the same degree. So we say, and the ancient people said, that Jesus, or God's Son, died for three days. Why? Because it was moving every day, and now it's not moving for three days. So for three days, the sun was dead, and on December 25th, the sun moves one degree northward, which indicates, our, our, and even the United States Navy will show you on their instruments that it indicates the sun is now alive again he's born again now he's going to work his way back to the northern hemisphere because he said god's son said i will i will return well he does he returns every year so what do you see do you see a man on this cross do you see a man dying on the cross no this is what is actually meant by dying on the cross. It's the sun. During the summer, when the sun is in the northern hemisphere, it is in the constellation of Leo, so he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then when he dies, he dies in Capricorn down south when he goes south. And so now he dies in the winter. And then he comes back and springs back to life and when he comes back to the Northern Hemisphere, we call it spring. But when it crosses the equator, the sun will have to cross the equator coming back to us in the north. When it crosses the equator, it is said to have passed over the equator. So in the Hebrew religion, 
when the sun passes over the, the, the coming back to the northern hemisphere, they call that celebration the Passover. But for Christians, they're worshiping the sun also as it passes over, but they refer to it as the resurrection. God's son has been resurrected. He's come back. It doesn't matter how you say it, a resurrection or a Passover. It just means the sun is coming back to us in the northern hemisphere. Sun worship is a very old religion dating back thousands of years before the Roman Empire. But in Rome, the sun god was called Mithra. Mithraism was the main religion in the Roman Empire at the time that Christianity was coming into, uh, coming into play in the Roman Empire. Emperor Constantine was a follower of Mithra, and Mithra uh, was God's son who died on a cross. Not Constantinople. And rose again. Emperor Constantine was famous for starting the, the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church was not started by Jesus. It was started by a Roman emperor. And it was and it was headquarters in Rome, not the heaven. <laughs> it was mixing Judaism and Mithraism and some of the other religions of the, of the uh, Arabic world that also worshiped the sun and brought all of these different religions together in order to confirm the power of Caesar in Rome under one religion and one government who it was actually a world government, supposedly, at the time. Catholic means universal, meaning whatever, air is Catholic, because air is all over the world. Water is Catholic. Anything which is all over the world is Catholic, because it's a Latin word that means universal. Constantine was trying to unite all the religions of the Roman Empire into one. Religious divisions are very dangerous, and they, are, and they can also harbor treason and, and anti-government. And so Caesar realized if he could bring all the religions into one religion and call it Christianity, and yet it would have all the parts of everybody else's religion. It would have Judaism, uh, worship of, of the sun. It would have Yahweh as a part of it. It would have Mithraism as a part of it, so that everyone could agree to follow one religion which Caesar would rule from, he would rule from. And so it was a political move, that's all. But the point is that Constantine, the Roman emperor, founded the Roman Catholic Church. This is a Sumerian picturing uh, the sun on the altar. In the ancient world, uh, the Phoenician, Canaanites, Sumerians, uh, the Hittites, all of these ancient cultures always uh, had helmets. Their military wore helmets with the rising sun symbol. The rising sun symbol is still used even today around the world on helmets and military. Here in Rome, you'll see the Romans wearing the rising sun. Again, you will see it here where the Romans. I didn't know that was a rising sun. Rulers of the people, but their symbol was the rising sun. And so now let's look at the sun worship today and its ancient foundation, which was the cult of Solus Invictus. 
So this Invictus is Saul, which is the sun, and invincible. The sun was said by the Romans, it was invincible. Why was the sun invincible? Because every year it came into its power in, in the summer, and then it would die in the winter to the, to the northern uh, hemisphere. But it would come back every year. It would come back to the northern hemisphere. So it may die in the winter, but it's coming back. It's invincible. You can't keep it down. And so we see today the, the pictures of Saul, and he's the sun riding across the sky. The sun was pictured in Rome as uh, riding on a chariot across heaven. And so the sun was that lucky old sun riding around heaven all day, roaming around heaven all day, on, a, on obviously on a chariot. And here is Solus Invicti, or uh, this is a picture of Mithra, and it shows us the sun spokes, the sun rays around his head, the sun god of Rome. Now, in the doctoral theses, there's a very important book called The Cult of Solus Invictus. And in it, it, it shows you all of the connections with the Roman government, the Roman religion, the Roman commerce. The entire state of Rome and the ancient Roman Empire was all based on the sun. And you'll see, like, the mm. sun cult uh, up to the first century of the empire, the political background of it, the establishment of the cult of Solus Invicti, the dogma, the teachings of the ancient the religion, Dysolus Invictus is the true Roman sun god. Of course, the Roman sun worship can be traced back to the ancient Egyptian sun, sun god, Amun-Ra. So Amun-Ra was, we, say, we use the word today, R-A-Y, Ray, sun Ray. But the ancient Egyptians called their god Ra, which that's where Ra comes from. So it was, it was called the cult of Ra, oh, or the cult of the sun Ray. And so here is Amun Ray, the official name of the sun god in Egypt. Amun Ray, A-M-E-N hyphen R-A. Here's Amun Ray again. Now, when you Talk see Amun Ray, the Egyptian Where's sun that? god was the supreme god of the universe, as, car, as, as, a, as said by the Egyptians. But what is important to remember is that Amun-Re, uh, today, in our supposed modern-day world, in our Christian church, both Catholic and Protestant, they refuse to give up the old pagan sun cult of Amun-Re. And so today, this is why when you pray to God, you end up by saying Amen, because you're sending your pagan prayer to God's sun, sun god Amun-Re. The Catholic Church is replete with all kinds of sun symbols. You'll always see the Pope wearing large sun symbols. Uh-oh, I hope I didn't move it. Solar worship. <clears throat> It's on his hand, it's on his uh, gloves, it's on the outside of churches, it's at the top of churches also, implying the sun has risen, and uh, the sun rays are dominating the, uh, the Catholic Church all over the world. 
Uh, here's uh, paintings on the on the wall of the Vatican showing the angels, uh, showing the the worker, the common man, the worker, to look to the sun for his food and for his life and for everything. That God's sun is the light of the world, and so Catholic Church or the Vatican is promoting sun worship. Everywhere the Catholic Church and Christians meet, you will see the sun. This is a convention held in the United States for the Pope and, and, and to honor the Pope and to honor the Catholic presence in America. But you will see that there is a sun in the middle representing Christianity, God's son, the light of the world. The Savior is born. Here are pictures from uh, modern-day uh, you know, magazines of Christians. The Savior is born. Is there a child? You see a child there? No, you see the sun. And so the sun is always golden. So the little the Son of God has the spokes of the of the uh, ancient uh, cross behind his head. You will see his he's always pictured as a blonde or the sun baby. And here's the mother uh, holding her son. And here in the Vatican is a very interesting uh, a picture of, this is a sculptor in the Vatican. And it is showing a Jesus' mother, the Virgin, which is Virgo, As the Virgin sunlight. of the Zodiac, holding her newborn son, S-U-N. <laughs> and this is in the Vatican, both baby Jesus and the grown-up Jesus are trying to show you what it's all symbolizing. It's symbolizing sun worship. Here you have the baby Jesus showing you the sun. Here the sun worship in the Jerusalem temple, the uh, ancient Hebrews worshiping the sun. Today we have the Pope, uh, you know, all over the world carrying the sun symbol for the sun. This is not a man on a cross. This is obviously sun worship. And you will see the sun everywhere here, the Pope. This is what is being promoted throughout the world as Christianity, but which is in fact sun worship. Now the ancient Egyptians pictured the, the sun had wings. And uh, we see it, and, and the sun is rolling across heaven. The sun in, in India and the Hindu worship of the sun. Now here we have the Inca priest kneeling on an altar and, and offering up the wine in the altar to the sun god. The same you will see in Japan. You'll see in England. They're singing praises in a hymn to the rising sun. The wood carving uh, picture of the Jews. And, and worshiping the sun. And here again is the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are writing about their savior, the sun. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is spring, summer, autumn, winter. The four seasons are symbolically represented by four gospels. This is a very important book showing that the sun in the church today Cathedrals are solar observatories. Now, of course, in, in India, the most important sun god in India was Krishna. Uh, we know that the Jesuits, when they went into India, 
they learn very quickly the whole religion of God's son, the light of the world in India, who was Krishna. And they came back and infiltrated those teachings and concepts into what we call Christianity. This is the work of the church borrowing the stories from the ancient world of sun gods who died on the cross. Now here is an ancient Babylonian king, and his name was Shemesh, and he was a Babylonian sun king. And you'll see the altar in front of him has the sun. But this is very important, a Babylonian king being worshipped, and his name was Shemesh. It's because in the Hebrew language, or in the Jews, Shemesh is the sun in the Jewish language. Hmm. Here we have 37 of what we call sons of God from the ancient world to the modern. And they all have the same identity and the same stories that go with their lives. They were born of a virgin. They, they died on a cross. They were dead for three days and then was resurrected and came back. Their, their father was a carpenter and they had 12, almost all of these had 12 followers or 12 apostles. They had the same story that we have in Christianity 37 times over. So it's a continuation of the same story coming out of the ancient world. And today we call it Catholicism or Christianity. The reason why these things keep repeating themselves is because it is what is called the greatest story ever told. I think it is the greatest story ever told. That the son is born each morning and ultimately dies at night and then emerges the next morning and bring life back again but then dies again. And so the whole story is on the subjects of the whole universe and how our skies work and how the planets work. I think that the idea that there are 37 major gods, sun gods, and each have the same kind of a story where they died the, the, you know, and were resurrected and they had a virgin birth, it seems to imply that there was some sort of an ancient, really truly ancient culture that developed this idea and this story for the world and therefore it has become known as the greatest story ever told because it is the is in fact the greatest story ever told because so many ancient cultures have picked it up and applied to their own selves their own gods who had the same story of dying on a cross and being resurrected There will not be any Messiah coming back for the Jews, for the Christians, or for any other religion on the earth. It's all based on ancient concepts of the prehistoric and ancient world of the sun representing life to the earth. So there won't be any Messiah coming back because there was none to start with. It's all based on the sun being the giver of life. So now that we have the, the technology today that we have, uh, where we can talk to the world uh, through the, 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 the system of technology, we can now begin to show the whole world where all of this has come from. All of these ideas and concepts and gods and sun gods have come from.
we're now able to do that with the technology we have today. So, so many people today are now beginning to see that their ancient and highly venerated religions are merely part of a world continuation of a same story, the greatest story ever told. I'm Jordan Maxwell, and thanks for watching. Sunroof, da na 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 na. That was Solar Worship? Solar Cult? Solar Worship. Okay, uh, this part of the Secret Life Symbols. This is Maserat Ordinance of Heaven, but we're gonna come back to that. Bueno, welcome back. We're currently doing a Jordan Maxwell binge fest on Gaia. Ooh, Saturn and Secret Societies, World of the Occult, those are coming up. Let's see, I guess we'll do in order. World of the Occult. Check it out, man. It means hidden. Okay. Occult. We live in a world filled with occult symbols and the signs are all around us. Jordan Maxwell takes us on a journey through time and the human mind to reveal his understanding Jordan of the Maxwell secrets. has been on the cutting edge of new thought for over half a century. This is Secret Life of Symbols. Reveals understanding of the secrets behind many of the symbols we see in our world from astrology to alchemy, Freemasonry, and secret sciences. These emblems have been blazing coins we and flags in many ancient cultures. We are getting better each day. And we uh, have come from a more primitive society, but we are getting better every day and becoming more superior in knowledge and technology, when actually, in point of fact, we are digressing. We are moving <coughs> away from what we were thousands and thousands of years ago. And I am of the opinion that our history has been vastly changed and so that we don't really know the history of mankind on this earth. We are finding that there are temples on the ocean floor, pyramids, Machu Picchu, Chichen uh, Itza, incredible structures of temples and knowledge which is displayed about the universe, about astrology, and the astronomical truths about the universe, the ancient, truly prehistoric and ancient people. They knew all about it. We're trying to catch up today to what they knew tens of thousands of years ago. We are finding that everything that we think we know has already been here tens of thousands of years ago. There was a higher life forms on this earth than we are. I have a vision of from the ancient world were not what we would refer to as humans. I think that they looked like us, maybe, or in some ways like us. They were far superior. Uh, the people, whoever they were, that built the Great Pyramid of, of Egypt had an Thought. extraordinarily brilliant understanding of the Earth, of our solar system, of the galaxy we're in, and all of the esoteric and profoundly important knowledge about light and the spirit of man and where we've come from and where we're going. 
And so it all implies that there was a far higher civilization all around the world. And the best science we have today are admitting <clears throat> that we're just trying to catch up with what the ancient peoples they already knew. These ancient brilliant builders and teachers, they didn't grow into that. They came in fully developed. When you look at Egypt, Egypt is a, is a classic example. If you go to the very beginnings of Egypt, it was already, it came in as an extraordinarily brilliant society of builders and knowledge, and then eventually devolved into what Egypt is today. But there was a time when Egypt was in its prime when it was founded. So it didn't kind of work up to, as we say, we're working up to uh, some kind of a, of a wonderful future. But Egypt didn't do that. It came in at its pinnacle. How is that possible? The only way it's possible is because when whoever we call, whoever this was that we call the ancient Egyptians, they were not of this world to start with. They came here knowing all that we still are trying to find out. So it implies that they were not from here. They came in fully understanding the whole universe. And they were able to do things with their temples and with the way that they laid out the pyramids. They knew things we didn't know and we still don't know. And we're still trying today in metaphysics and in, in occultism, uh, religion, we're trying to find the bottom line that the ancient peoples, they already knew. There is obviously a high science behind the life period. And all of the, the best of the best in our human life, like astrology and alchemy and all of the other what I call sciences. Others would say, no, they're just belief systems. No, they're sciences because when you really look into them, you begin to see that they're telling you things that scientists are just now beginning to realize. There's a higher occult or hidden. The word occult simply means hidden. And so there's obviously a higher science or an occult science behind mankind's ability to contemplate the spiritual aspects of life on the earth. There's lots of ancient people already knew what we're trying to find out today. We know that, uh, that the pyramids, say in Mexico and Central and South America, along with the, the great temples around the world, were solar temples. They were the center for astronomy. And so the ancient peoples were not looking for spiritual uh, answers as such. They were looking at the actual universe and trying to figure out where we are, what we're doing, and what is the universe. And so from that uh, inquiry into the actual setup of the way the universe operates, then from there, they began to suspect that there was some kind of an unwritten, powerful laws in the universe that guided the sun, the moon, the planets, and the whole uh, of the solar system. They start off scientifically just looking for answers to what...
the moon, the planets, and the whole uh, of the solar system. They start off scientifically just looking for answers to what we're doing here. What is this? And from there, they begin to develop religions or philosophies, alchemy, uh, astrology, medicine, and then human interrelationships. And then from there, you get into all the other metaphysical pursuits. And that's why today the world is half scientific and yet half spiritual. But the spirituality did not come first. It's the regular interest in how the world works. That's what the ancient peoples built those great observatories for. They just wanted to study the heavens. But in doing so, it didn't take long till around the world, mankind that was viewing the heavens for science began to suspect that there's something else going on here. And now comes the, the world of spirituality. As I said, the word occult simply means hidden. So there are many hidden sciences that the really bright people who are looking into these things know about. But generally speaking, the world of mankind is not really well informed about alchemy and about these sciences of, of spirituality. But that's growing now, too. So people are beginning to wake up to the spiritual relevance to your life of spiritual subjects. I think that there is something there that needs to be looked at, this whole idea of where man has come from, where he is right now, and ultimately where is he going to go with his knowledge and with his life and experiences? What is the reason why we're having the experiences that each of, each of us do have each day? We're all growing, and hopefully we are growing far more intelligent and, and insightful and looking at the spiritual aspects of our life. That's a very important feature of being alive, is to not just live for the material world today, but start asking serious questions about where were you before you were born? And where will you be after you leave here, this earth? And what is the reason for our human life? And why are we learning so many hard lessons the hard way? There seems to be some sort of an overshadowing presence in the universe that men have called God or some sort of an ultimate uh, spiritual presence that is leading or directing our evolution. And if that be the case, which it seems to be, then maybe there is some hope yet for the human race that if enough people begin to wake up, spiritually speaking, and begin to look at their lives spiritually, then there might be hope for us. Yeah, because this is why we are in the shape we're in today, because we are living in this me generation. And this generation that only cares about feeding itself and taking care of itself and enjoying itself, never realizing you have responsibilities to the world that you live in and to help, to help your fellow man to, to grow and to help educate other people. I can speak for myself in relation to the idea of why do we seek 
wisdom and spiritual knowledge, I have always understood that I have questions within myself that others can't answer. And for me, looking at these questions, uh, they make a lot of sense to me. Why this and why that? Why did this happen? So I, I have learned that to think deeply on these spiritual questions of life opened me up to a whole world of knowledge because I realize how much I don't know. And I am also well aware of the spiritual implications of the laws in the universe around us. There are certain things you can do in this world and things you cannot do. And you will pay. You will pay a terrible price for doing the things you're not supposed to do. And I am totally convinced that there is some sort of an overshadowing force in the world that wants us to grow. And this concept is even in Christianity where you're talking about, you hear talk about good angels and bad demons and bad angels, uh, implying that there are good forces, unseen forces out there, and then there are bad. And we know that there is something called good and bad, and there are certain things in all society, which are known to be bad and evil. I tend to think that there is something to this idea of reincarnation. And I, the reason why is because it is pretty much agreed upon by so many of the ancient religions and philosophers and great teachers of the world. My gut feeling is that we do come into this world with baggage from other lifetimes. And, and this is why we begin to become who we are because of who we were before. Another part of that story is that we, before we came and incarnated on this earth, that we chose a particular lifestyle, we're told and uh, given to understand, and that we chose our own parents before we came here. I understand the spirit world not enough to know that it's very possible that we, and we were in a spiritual state and then we incarnated into a physical state. Now the rest of it is uh, up for speculation. I'm totally convinced that there are very legitimate and real uh, otherworldly, I choose to call it, otherworldly forces, spirit forces, demonic forces, there, of that, there is no doubt in my mind about because I've had too many personal experiences that tells me and proves to me that somebody's watching us, somebody's watching the human family. The very history Could of it how be America Satan? was founded the, and the founding <laughs> fathers, so to speak, what vision they had when they were putting together the idea to found this country. What was their vision? You know, what were they thinking? And what were they actually working toward? And now that gets into the, uh, the, the subject of Freemasonry, to the secret sciences like alchemy and political. There's a lot of political stuff in there too. You have to be careful about secret societies because these different societies become very powerful, very wealthy, but they have an agenda. They have a particular agenda that they're trying to 
uh, create or to uh, bring into being, and therefore they will build the whole world around you. And you accept what, you know, when you're a child or a baby, you come into the world and you just accept everything. And if you don't grow up, you just, as a grown person, you just accept whatever there is because that's the way it is. But that's not the way it is. And you keep in mind that there were secret societies that were involved in founding this country. Who were they? And what were they trying to do? You have to know secret societies to understand why there are so many different symbols and emblems in Washington, D.C. and around the world. Because there's different groups, societies, that are working towards certain agenda, and they are putting symbols out that represent their agenda. We know that even in gangs, that when you describe to neighborhoods like Los Angeles, and there are scribblings on the walls of gangs, those symbols mean something. And if you're in a gang, you know what those symbols mean. They're telling you something. Whoever is controlling that area, that's their symbols. And that's a whole study that you need to get into, studying the occult symbols of power in this world. They're used to, as a means to communicate and to influence you or to connect you with the spiritual world that they represent. So let's start with a religious symbol, and that is an ancient Phoenician god that was very important in the Middle East some 5,000 years ago. That god was called Dagon, D-A-G-O-N. <coughs> Dagon Dogon. was a fish god. Interesting how he has evolved into today's world of religion. Dagon is still very much alive with the world today. First of all, everyone knows that Christianity is founded on the worship of Jesus Christ that is accepted around the world. And most people believe that the Vatican is the center for the worship of Jesus, the God of Christianity. Uh, however, millions of people also believe uh, is that the Pope of Rome is leading the Christians to worship Jesus throughout the world. But my question is, who is the Pope leading the worship of? The first symbol that I want to talk about is the headdress that the Pope or the Bishop of Rome wears. Uh, that headdress is very interesting and has one, uh, quite a history to it. That Pope's headdress is called a uh, Pope's mitre. The Pope's mitre—we've uh, seen it in many different shapes, but they're always basically the same shape. The Pope's mitre—it's an official headdress worn only by the Pope, or supposedly only by the Pope. But we need to understand that that symbol goes back at least five thousand years. So what we need to know and what we need to keep in mind is that this strange and interesting headdress of, of hat that the Pope wears is impacted by a, a god named Dagon. Dagon was a god of the Philistines. And Dagon comes from the word dag, which means fish. So Dagon was a fish god. And here we have pictures of another fish god named Anis, same god 
but it was worshipped in different countries under different names. So we have we have a God who's half fish and half man, or men who wear the garbs of a fish in their in their religious uh, celebration. So here in the Jewish Encyclopedia, under the heading of Dagon, you will see a picture of uh, the priest of Dagon or the God Himself, and He's wearing a fish head and the body of a fish down His back. So now we see the Pope's headdress. On the top is the Pope's mitre, but when turned, you then see he's actually wearing a fish head, the fish god, Dagon, because he's representing the worship of an ancient Phoenician god. So this is why today Christians on the back of their cars, you will see, have a fish symbol. I'm thinking that uh, that's to denote them as Christians worshiping Jesus. No, it's a fish symbol because it's denoting Dagon, the fish god. The significance is Dagon was a very important mystical god to the ancient peoples in the Middle East, in Babylonia, Sumeria, Phoenicia, Cana. And that very powerful mystical god is still dominating the spirit and the intellectual thinking of religion even to today. So it's not Jesus that's influencing the Vatican and the Pope. Uh, it's Dagon, the fish god. That's the importance of this. The point being is that religion is, comes to the world in the age of Pisces. And Pisces is, of course, the two fish of the constellation of Pisces. But Dagon is 5,000 years old. Another one of the symbols I find to be very interesting that's used quite often around the world today, but a lot of people don't know uh, how it's connected to the religions of today, and that is a magic wand. Magic wands, we've, we've heard in stories galore from children from childhood days about magicians who use a magic wand. Well, the magic wand is just what it says. It. It's a... It's a some sort of a branch of a tree that has been consecrated and, and made holy by blessings from, from the, the priest, and now it has a magical quality that can do things that other that humans can't do. The Druid priests, they use the wood of a holly tree. They use Hollywood. And that's what we have the term today, Hollywood, in the magic of Hollywood. Today we have Hollywood, uh, we have Mickey Mouse waving a magic wand. On the left side we also have actual real magic wands as they are made today in Europe. And of course orchestra leaders, and orchestra conductors, they, they lead the, the music with uh, a magic wand. And a lot of people haven't thought about that, but that's what it is, a magic wand. So here we have a picture of Moses where he is conjuring up the spirits and the universe with a magic wand. That's very interesting, Moses with a magic wand. In uh, the ancient Roman Empire, the most important god uh, at the height of Rome's power in the world was a god named Mithra. Mithra was a sun god. And according to the Roman explanation of their god, he 
was not only a sun god, but he did his miracles with a magic wand. Now here we have Jesus raising Lazarus from the tomb. And you will see that Jesus is using a magic wand. How many Christians know that all throughout Europe and around the world, Christian churches have Jesus working his miracles with uh, magic wands. A lot of people don't know that. So we we hear all about the uh, the magical things that Jesus was able to do. But here in the actual churches, we see that Jesus is doing his miracles with a magic wand. The importance of this is to point out that people do not realize that in Christianity, uh, the understanding in the ancient world and in the medieval world was that these religious figures like Jesus were doing their their miracles with magic wands. But it's actually legitimate, du jour, real, magical system of controlling people's minds and directing their spirits and their hearts and, and being able to direct our, our civilization through magical symbols and magical words. Another symbol that I find to be very interesting is uh, in Star Trek, there was a Mr. Spock. And if you remember, Mr. Spock was always giving a hand sign, and he was said to be a Vulcan. First of all, his hand sign was actually a religious symbol in Judaism, uh, in which it was a blessing to the congregation in Judaism. It's called the Kohen symbol. This symbol is a Jewish blessing symbol. But where did it come from? It comes from the split hoof of a goat. It goes back to the split hoof of a goat because we're talking about the age of Aries, the ram, when the Jews were under the age of the ram, the ram or the lamb of God. And so that's why today we call Jesus the lamb of God going back to the constellation of uh, Aries, the ram. Nebor even said that he accepted that sign and used it but because it was a sign from his rabbi, and he thought it was a very interesting symbol, so he just used it in Star Trek. I'm sure he probably knew the, uh, the, the meaning of the sign, but that's where he said he got it from. Another subject which is interesting and very relevant today is a symbol called the fasci or the fasces. On the back of it, uh, on the back of an American dime, you will see a bundle of sticks tied together, and it has an axe head with it. That is uh, called a fasci, and this is an ancient Etruscan symbol that was adopted by the Roman Empire to symbolize Rome's power. It's an old ancient Etruscan symbol, but it's very important to the Roman Empire. Rome said, ancient Rome's philosophy was, if there's just one stick, you can can beat somebody with a stick, but it's not gonna hurt them really. But if you got two or three sticks, now now it's gonna be a, a little bit heavier deal. But if you get five or six sticks and tie them together as one, now you've got serious strength now. Now when you beat somebody with uh, six or eight sticks tied together, that's, that's serious. And so then they put a hatchet head on it because 
uh, an axe head always represented in almost all the ancient cultures of the world accepted that the axe head represented the presence of God. God was the great hatchet. The, you know, he's giving you the axe. And so the hatchet head represented God and the bundle of sticks represented a coalition of troops. So when Rome would go into some uh, to another country to overtake it, they would take troops from this group and troops from that group and put them all together. Now you've got a strong force. It's not just Romans. It's all kinds of other countries are, are with you. And so that's what we hear today when we hear the presidents talking about during the Middle East, they have a coalition uh, of, of countries, not just America. We have uh, other countries with us. It's a coalition. Coalition is another name for fasci, which is a symbol for world fascism, where you can get all the countries together and, and have them all, you know, all doing the same thing, all of the countries uh, marching to the same tune. Now you've got a strong military force. The fasci was, was usually carried officially behind Caesar. He would be on, in the front of the parade or whatever, and there would be what is called lectors behind him, and they would be holding the fasci, symbolizing Caesar's power over life and death. He is the man. He's the boss. And so the lectors would be standing on both sides of Caesar on the altars when Caesar was speaking, <clears throat> holding those fasci. So that the Roman people know he is, he has the right to life and death. So here you see in World War II uh, with Mussolini on the left and his symbol for his government, a fasci. Well, of course, he's Italian and that goes back to the Roman Empire. And so here we have uh, a Nazi, as you'll see, the swastika and the, the Nazi eagle like the American uh, ball eagle. Uh, but you'll see the two fasces on each side of the swastika. This is because Germany was in league with Italy during the Second World War. Mussolini had in mind to do the same thing Adolf Hitler wanted to do, was to create a new world order. And so Mussolini saw that new world order as being Catholic, as to be Roman. While, uh, while Germany saw it to be uh, German and, and uh, not Italian. But the two together, uh, I suppose they figured they'll, they'll work that out once they take over the world. Well, Mussolini actually, according to history books, actually thought of himself as Caesar. He saw himself in his position of power at the time of the Second World War as Caesar of the ancient Roman Empire. And therefore, it would be right that he would pick the symbol that Caesar used to show his power. And so that's why the, the fasci became so fashionable in Italy. But the two fasces you will also see on the uh, wall behind the, um, where the Speaker of the House sits when the President's making a, a speech. The United States has, uh, has a secret societies uh, in their government and behind the government are very powerful secret societies that see itself, these societies see themselves as the, as the promoters and, the, and, the, and to generate a new world order. All countries copy each other. The fascists copied the Etruscans 
the Romans copied the Greeks and the Greeks copied the, the Egyptians and that's just the way humans are. As much as we change, uh, the more we stay the same. We're all still adopting the same symbols that we adopted. Uh, the Egyptian Empire, we're still using those symbols today, pyramids. Let's talk about the pyramid. And we all recognize that there's uh, three beautiful pyramids on what is called the Giza Plateau in, in Egypt. But my question is, there's only one of the three of those pyramids is referred to as the Great Pyramid. First of all, you need to know that the pyramid that's directly behind the Sphinx uh, is not the Great Pyramid. It is a Great Pyramid in Egypt, but it is not the Great Pyramid. This is the Great Pyramid of Egypt. How many sides does the Great Pyramid have? Well, you would think if there's four sides, and then there's the bottom as a side, so it would be five-sided pyramid. But actually, in point of fact, no, the Great Pyramid is... We're going to pull up. ...bundle of sticks represented a coalition of troops. So when Rome would go into some uh, to another country to overtake it, they would take troops from this group and troops from that group and put them all together. Now you've got a strong force. It's not just Roman. It's all kinds of other countries are, are with you. And so that's what we hear today when we hear the presidents talking about during the Middle East, they have a coalition uh, of, of countries, not just America. We have uh, other countries with us. It's a coalition. Coalition is another name for fasci, which is a symbol for world fascism, where you can get all the countries together and, and have them all you know, all doing the same thing, all of the countries uh, marching to the same tune, now you've got a strong military force. The Fasci was, was usually carried officially behind Caesar. He would be on, in the front of the parade or whatever, and there would be what is called lectors behind him, and they would be holding the Fasci, symbolizing Caesar's power over life and death. He is the man. He's the boss. And so the lectors will be standing on both sides of Caesar on the altars when Caesar was speaking, holding those fasci so that the Roman people know he is, he has the right to life and death. So here you see in World War II uh, with Mussolini on the left and his symbol for his government, a fasci. Well, of course, he's Italian. That goes back to the Roman Empire. And so here we have uh, a Nazi, as you'll see, the swastika and the, and the Nazi eagle, like the American uh, ball eagle. Uh, but you'll see the two fasces on each side of the swastika. This is because oh, Germany was in league with Italy during the Second World War. Mussolini had in mind to do the same thing Adolf Hitler wanted to do was to create a new world order. And so Mussolini saw that new world order as being Catholic, as to be Roman, while, uh, while Germany saw it to be uh, German and, and uh, not Italian. But the two together, uh, I suppose they figured they'll, they'll work that out once they take over the world. Well, Mussolini actually, according to history books, actually thought of himself as Caesar. 
he saw himself in his position of power at the time of the Second World War as Caesar of the ancient Roman Empire, and therefore it would be right that he would pick the symbol that Caesar used to show his power. And so that's why the, the fasci became so fashionable in Italy. But the two fasci's you will also see on the uh, wall behind the, um, where the Speaker of the House sits when the President's making a, a speech. The United States has, uh, has a secret societies uh, in their government and behind the government are very powerful secret societies that see itself, these societies see themselves as the, as the promoters and, the, and, the, and to generate a new world order. Fascism. All countries copy each other. The fascists copied the ah. Etruscans, uh, the Romans copied the Greeks, and the Greeks copied the, the Egyptians, and that's just the way humans are. As much as we change, uh, the more we stay the same. We're all still adopting the same symbols that we adopted under uh, the Egyptian Empire. We're still using those symbols today, pyramids. Let's talk about the pyramid. And we all recognize that there's uh, three beautiful pyramids on what is called the Giza Plateau in, in Egypt. But my question is, there's only one of the three of those pyramids is referred to as the Great Pyramid. First of all, you need to know that the pyramid that's directly behind the Sphinx uh, is not the Great Pyramid. It is a Great Pyramid in Egypt, but it is not the Great Pyramid. This is the Great Pyramid of Egypt. How many sides does the Great Pyramid have? Well, you would think if there's four sides, and then there's the bottom as a side, so it would be five-sided pyramid. But actually, in point of fact, no, the Great Pyramid is nine sides. Why? Because on the first day of the spring equinox or the fall equinox, if you're in the right place at the right moment when the sun hits the pyramid, you will see that each side is divided down the middle, but so subtle that when you're there at the pyramid, you don't notice it. But on the first day of spring and autumn, you will see the Great Pyramid is divided down the middle. And so here again is another picture of the pyramid from above on that special day, and that special mm. hour, when the sun's hitting it just wow. right. And so each side is two sides. Nine sides. Therefore, if uh, you, you've got not four sides, but eight, plus the bottom side makes nine. So how many people know that the Great Pyramid of Egypt has nine sides. It's strange, but it seems as that no one really knows why the Egyptians took so much effort to divide <clears throat> each side of the pyramid so perfectly and so brilliantly and such uh, that you would not see it until a particular day at a particular time. We call it the Great Pyramid because there's a lot of important stuff uh, implied in that, in that, in that pyramid. And the other pyramids do not even come close. They don't have anything like what's in that Great Pyramid. That is one act by itself. The only one. That's what we today call it the Great Pyramid.
Uh, the next subject we'd like to look at for a moment is the cornerstone in the Christian religion. Christians will tell you that the church, that in the church of Christianity, Jesus is referred to as uh, the, the, the cornerstone of the church. But that's not exactly correct. The actual scripture says that he's not the cornerstone. It says Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is what it's said to be, just a stone at the corner of a building. But wherever you set that cornerstone up, you're going to line all the other stones up with it. So it's the first one that decides where this building is going to be aiming. And so Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. But Jesus is actually referred to as the chief cornerstone. And that's important because a totally different understanding of the word chief cornerstone. Chief cornerstone means a triangle placed on top of a pyramid. A little, if you take a perfect flawless pyramid, triangle, and you cut off the top, it itself is a pyramid, but it's a tiny one that sits on top of the big one. That tiny little pyramid is called a pyramidion. A pyramidion is a tiny pyramid sitting on top of the big pyramid. That's what the Bible says Jesus is. He is a pyramidion. He's not a cornerstone. He's a chief cornerstone, which is on the top of a pyramid. That was the genius of the ancient Egyptians. And so today, the more we have changed, the more we stay the same. And so we use the same symbol that Caesar used. We use the same symbol that the Babylonians used. It's because... Mankind is hardwired, so to speak, to realize the importance of very powerful symbols to represent your civilization and who you are, where you come from, and what your destiny is. It's everywhere from religion to governments to military, commerce, banking. Symbols is a way to communicate with the world. I'm Jordan Maxwell, and thank you for watching. Looking great. Secret life symbols. He passed away in 2022. Great man. Great scholar. Da da dee dee da 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 da